Welcome back, humans. Welcome to another episode of Unabashedly Catholic and Passionately Human. There goes my tambourine. What I have today is a meditation from a book called The Spirit of St. Dominic. It is a collection of conferences given by Humbert Clarissac, O.P., and it's published by Cluny Media with an introduction by Thomas Joseph White, OP. If you have been listening to the rest of my podcast episodes, you will find that I have a certain familiarity with and affection for Dominican spirituality and Dominicans in general. But that's not really the reason why I chose this meditation. Instead, I chose it because it applies to today and to all of us, both in our spirituality as Christians and in our humanity as human beings. So let's begin. It says, quote, The lesson of Solomon's porch should come home to us in a very special way. We as disciples in the school of Jesus Christ, the greatest of masters, should always, by word and work, echo his teaching with enthusiastic devotion. All our mysticism, and above all, St. Thomas's treatise on the Incarnation, are but a commentary on these words of Christ. My Father is greater than all. My Father and I are one. And just as our Lord mingles with this sublime teaching simple images of the pastoral life, my sheep hear my voice, I know them and they will follow me, and I will give to them life eternal. So also we must see in Dominican life a pasture in which the highest objects of faith become food and life to the soul. Our devotion then to our Lord is devotion to the God Christ, devotion to the eternal truth, to the divine word, living in and personally united with the sacred humanity of Jesus. Innumerable will be the effects on our lives of such devotion. The very least we can say is that it keeps us from lowering and weakening in our souls the idea, and in our worship and ministry the image, of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is impossible to ignore the sad fact that such a lowering tendency is manifest everywhere as a general tendency of the present day. It has resulted in widespread irreverence, and, on the part of many believers, in a deplorable indifference and inconsistency. It is truly an alarming symptom. Where is our robust Christianity? Where are vigorous, wholehearted Christians today? It is easy to be irritated by this unhealthy tendency in its more obvious material manifestations when, for example, we meet with debased religious art and certain mawkish and empty forms of prayer. But there is very little difference between such cheapness and vulgarity and the childish aggressiveness of subjective criticism against theology. To us, our Lord appears, above all else, as a giant and twofold substance one. Yes, a giant, and even in his humanity, terrible, mighty, majestic. The faith of the Middle Ages was not barbaric or rude when it preferred to consider our Lord as the judge of all men, when it took delight in placing him over the arches of the sanctuaries in the center of terrifying apocalyptic scenes, when it depicted him of gigantic size in the apses, as if to fill the whole church with his presence, and when it gave even to the figures of his childhood powerful proportions 
to express the greatness of the divine mind. It might be said that within the church many people seem to put a weak element into their devotion to Christ, not indeed anything opposed to theological tenets, but something of a sentimentally sympathetic and protective nature. The development otherwise remarkable of the idea of reparation towards our Lord seems to be understood by some as their solicitude for one distressed and hopeless. And even chivalrous worship contains something of a sentiment of pity for the weakness and destitution of the object of its devotion. Our devotion to our Lord leads us further than these considerations. We in no way repudiate our simple duty of advancing on earth Christ's accidental glory, but first and before all, we rejoice in glory and his essential and eternal glory which is immutable and inalienable. We do not lose sight of the crown of thorns, but we strive to see shining on his brow the diadem of the divine attributes. Christ dies now no more, says St. Paul. He is not only beyond the reach of the blows of his enemies. Even on the cross, the divine person drank bliss at its source in the beatific life of the three in one, but also his great work as our Redeemer. If apparently doomed to fail must ultimately be crowned with the triumph of, triumph of his divine attributes. Truly, no devotion to our Lord, no zeal for his glory on earth, could be worthy of him. If irreconcilable with, and estranged from, a living joy in his divine and eternal glory. Our Lord's only prayer for himself had no concern for his own accidental glory on earth, but, as it seems, the full splendor of the eternal glory of his risen Humanity. Glorify thou me, O Father, with thyself, with the glory that I had before the world was with thee. We may reserve our protecting compassion for men on earth. It is our duty to work till death, if need be, for the interest and salvation of their souls. But for pity's sake, let us talk less about the interests of our Lord. Let us pay to his eternal glory and beatitude the homage of our joy, which is the true mark of supernatural love. Let us preach and spread abroad the greatest glory of our divine Lord. I have sufficiently pointed out that it will not exclude rejoicing in his cross. <clears throat> We're going to take a, great, a quick break right there. And when I come back, I will unpack this and explain what a lot of those big words mean. I'll be right back. Okay, back from our break. That was a long meditation, and I apologize. My voice sounding a little raspy. I've had uh, stuffed sinuses with uh, allergies lately. But what does this mean? What does all this long meditation mean? Well, to begin with, he's talking about our devotion to Jesus should be rooted in both his humanity and his divinity. It's a devotion to the God Christ, to the eternal truth, to the divine word, living in and personally united with the sacred humanity of Jesus. We should never divide the two. We should never be devoted to Jesus simply as a human being or simply as the Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. 
We should never divide the two. If we're going to have devotion to Jesus, it should be all of Jesus, the whole Jesus, God incarnate. And then he says, innumerable will be the, f- the effects on our lives of such devotion. So it's going to have a very deep and resounding effect on our life if we are devoted to Jesus as both God and man. And the very least of these is keeping us away from lowering and, we- and weakening in our souls the idea of who Jesus is. And that's the very least. If we simply keep before our minds the fact that he is God and man, the very least it can do is keep us from having weak faith. And then he goes on to say it is impossible to ignore the sad fact that such a lowering tendency is manifest everywhere as a general tendency of the present day. Now this was said in the early 1900s, But it's still present today. It's still true today that there are so many people who have a weak devotion to Jesus because they have divided him up. They either see him as just God who's going to judge you at the end of your life, or they see him as just one among many religious leaders who said some nice things and I'm going to take some of what he said that I like and try to implement that into my life. When you divide him up like that, you are not devoted to who he really is. Your understanding of him in whole, in his totality, is weakened. And then that has a deep and widespread effect on all of your devotions. You can become indifferent and inconsistent, he says. Irreverent. It has resulted in widespread irreverence and on the part of many believers in a deplorable indifference and inconsistency. So it's like, well, if I don't believe that Jesus really is God in the flesh, then I am going to say, well... He says this over here that I like, and I'm going to stick with that, but if I come across something that he says that I don't like, it's perfectly okay for me to say, well, I don't believe that. It's indifference. Well, it doesn't really matter to me that he said that, because I don't really have to believe it. And I'm going to think that way if I don't believe that Jesus really is God and man. If I believe that he's just one among many religious teachers, then I can easily say, well, if there's something I don't like or don't agree with, I don't feel that it applies to me, then I can be indifferent to it. I can say, oh, well, it's, it, maybe it works for you, but it doesn't work for me. There you see the relativism. It's relative in the sense that it may be true for you and work for you, but it doesn't for me. Or it may be true in a certain circumstance, And it may work in a certain circumstance, but it doesn't in every circumstance. We would lose that if we really understood that Jesus is God and man. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and that everything he says is true now, in the future, and it was true then. It never changes. It is not relative. It is always true for every person, in every time period, and in every circumstance. 
No matter what's going on in your life, it is always true. And it's everything that he says, not just a few of the things he says. And that leads into the inconsistency as well. This sort of hypocrisy in our life, where I say, on the one hand, I believe that um, Jesus is right in, in saying that everyone has dignity and everyone should be loved because God loves them and because Jesus died to forgive their sins. I, I believe that, but then when somebody does something to me that I feel is unforgivable, I refuse to forgive them. That would be the hypocrisy and, and the inconsistency. There's even a passage in scripture that says this. That's like a man looking in the mirror and seeing his face and then promptly walking out the door and forgetting what he looked like. We can't do that. We can't be that inconsistent if we really do believe that Jesus is God in flesh and that everything he says is true. And so that's why he bursts with this, this is truly an alarming symptom. Where is our robust Christianity? Where are our vigorous, wholehearted Christians today? And he says it's easy to be irritated by this unhealthy tendency, and it's more obvious material manifestations, like I just listed. And he gives some examples. Debased religious art and certain mawkish and empty forms of prayer. These would be prayers that are just like, oh, well, um, Jesus, you're, you're a nice person, and I agree with the whole brotherhood and love each other thing, but I'm not really going to take you at your word. I'm not really going to believe everything you say. I'm just going to say, oh, it's nice to love everybody. It's like Barney. I love you. You love me. We're a happy family. But it's empty. And it's childish. It's not robust. And it doesn't affect every part of my life. And he says in this book, continues on, there's very little difference between that cheapness and vulgarity and the childish aggressiveness of subjective criticism against theology. What does he mean by that? He means you saying, I don't like this teaching because it makes me uncomfortable. I don't think that it applies to my life and my experiences. I don't feel that it applies to the 21st century and the things that we're dealing with today. So therefore, I am going to say that it's problematic and evidently not true. He calls that childish and aggressive subjective criticism. Saying that for me personally, subjectively, it just doesn't work. And I think it's not true. And it's interesting here, he characterizes that as being both childish and aggressive. It's like a toddler throwing a temper tantrum because you took the toy that was broken away from them. And you try to explain to them that it was broken. It doesn't work. But they still hold on to it with everything that they have. And they scream and they cry. It's a blood-curdling scream. It's aggressive. But we need to let go of it. We're going to take another quick break from that. And when I come back, I'm going to explain the rest of the reading, since it was such a long one. So quick break again. I'll be right back. 
Okay, back from our break, our second break. This will be the last section. What I finished in our last section, previous section, was talking about the subjective criticism against theology for things that I just personally don't like or feel that they don't apply to me. And now I'm going to go into the last paragraph of the devotion that I read, where Humbert Clarissac, OP, talks about the Middle Ages and uh, the humanity of Jesus being seen as a giant in twofold substance, one terrible humanity that is mighty and majestic, united to God himself. He's a giant in twofold substance, yet still one. And then he continues on by saying that the faith of the Middle Ages was not barbaric or rude when it preferred to consider our Lord as the judge of all men and took delight in placing him over the arches of the sanctuaries in the center of terrifying apocalyptic scenes. Some people might think that, well, that's that's outdated to see Jesus as such a judgmental God. No, don't judge me as if God couldn't judge you. And he continues on from there saying that the point of this was to fill the whole church with his presence. And they even gave the features of his childhood a powerful proportion to express the greatness of the divine mind. So even as a child, he was mighty and majestic and powerful. And there's nothing rude about that, he's saying. It's just the truth. And it made it clear in, every, in everyone's mind that that is the truth, that he is God, and that he is your judge. You can't escape that. It's not rude. It's just the truth. And he continues on, It might be said that within the church many people seem to put a weak element into their devotion to Christ. Not indeed anything opposed to theological tenets, but something of a sentimentally sympathetic and protective nature. So what's he saying there? There could be people who are not really opposed to the church's teaching. There's nothing in particular they say, well, I don't like that or I don't, or I don't agree with it. But instead, it's something just sentimentally sympathetic and protective. The development otherwise remarkable of the idea of reparation towards our Lord seems to be understood by some as their solicitude for one distressed and hopeless. What he's saying there is we we get to the point where we pity Jesus. That our idea of making reparation for our sins to him is out of a sense of pity because he's distressed and hopeless. We're sentimentally sympathetic toward him and we're protective of him as if he's just a defenseless little child that needs us to protect him. Like, oh, I'm sorry, Jesus, I said something that offended you. Oh, I'm so sorry. Here's a cookie. Excuse me? He's God. He's not offended by what you said because he's so immature that it hurt his feelings. He's offended by your sins because they damage you. And furthermore, they damage your relationship with other people. So again, when we lose that full understanding 
of who Jesus is, we can become this. We can say, well, I don't disagree necessarily with, with what Jesus teaches. I simply see him as somebody who needs my protection. And I'm going to apologize to him for my sins because, well, you know, they upset him. They hurt his feelings. No. That's equally as subjective and and weak as the other side. It's not as aggressive as the one I explained previously of saying, well, I just disagree with that because I don't think it applies to me. It's not as aggressive as that, but it's still weak. And he continues on in this devotion to say, even chivalrous worship contains something of a sentiment of pity for the weakness and destitution of the object of its devotion. What he's talking about there is like chivalry where a gentleman would take care of a lady because she's so helpless and weak. Because we have a sentiment of pity for the weakness and destitution of the object of the one we are devoted to. So it would seem like, oh, well, he's being a gentleman. He's doing as, as he should. But he's really only pitying the person he seems to be devoted to. And that's just as weak. Our devotion should, as he says, lead us further than these. We in no way repudiate our simple duty of advancing on earth Christ's accidental glory. But first and before all, we rejoice in glory in his essential and eternal glory, which is immutable and inalienable. What he means there is, we don't look down on the everyday duty we have as Christians to glorify God on earth with our own lives. Other people can see the glory of God. That's what he means by the accidental glory where they see the glory of God in our own lives and in our devotion. And it may be a prayer we say, or it may be a song you sing, or it may be a piece of artwork. You know, they can see the glory of God by that. It's a simple duty. It's something we should do. But first and before all, all of that, before all of that, we rejoice in glory and his essential and eternal glory which is immutable and inalienable. It means it doesn't change. Before we can do any of that other stuff of glorifying him on earth, we have to first rejoice in glory in his essential and eternal glory. And what he also means by this accidental glory is when Jesus becomes man. He had glory before he became man. And we should rejoice in that. Not just rejoicing in the fact that now he's visible, now he's human, now his glory can be made known to all. We shouldn't just rejoice in that duty or in him becoming man, but we should also rejoice in the fact that he was always glorious and that it never changes. And finally, he says, we do not lose sight of the crown of thorns, but we strive to see shining on his brow the diadem of the divine attributes And in the last sentence I read, I have sufficiently pointed out that it will not exclude rejoicing in his cross. We should always, always rejoice in the cross of Christ.
in his suffering and never shy away from him. His great work as our Redeemer, if apparently doomed to fail, must ultimately be crowned with the triumph of his divine attributes. Just the fact that God himself chose to do that, even if it did fail. Even if it didn't save us. We still remember that he is God. He is glorious. He has those divine attributes. And just rejoice in the fact that it was God himself who chose to do this. His divine and eternal glory. Our Lord's only prayer for himself had no concern for his own accidental glory on earth. He's talking about again, when Jesus prayed before his crucifixion. It was not only out of concern for him being glorified on earth. But, as it seems, the full splendor of the eternal glory of his risen humanity. Glorify thou me, O Father, with thyself, with the glory that I had before the world was. So Jesus' ultimate prayer is that his humanity, once risen, will be glorified in heaven with his Father, as he had always been in glory, before he even became man that it would just simply return back to that glory. And ultimately, the reason why he brings this up is that that's the root of true devotion to Christ. Because we know that he always had that glory, and it never changed. And we should rejoice in the fact that someone so glorious chose to humble himself and take on human form just because he loves us. If we keep that in mind, that he is both God and man, and he has all of this glory that he was willing to share with us in a way that we could understand it. Look at the love and the mercy and the wisdom of God in doing that. And we can trust it so absolutely that even if it doesn't save us, even if it is no good, we still can rejoice that someone so glorious bent down to walk with us. Praise God. Alleluia. Alleluia.